0: This is G'day World 308. It's a recording that was done in Second Life at TPN Headquarters on the 11th of January 2007 and is the first meeting of the Church of Lotu. The problem with this recording is it's only got my voice. I couldn't figure out how to record everybody's voices. Fortunately, not many people apart from me spoke. Nick Hodge from Microsoft made some good points and asked some great questions and mostly it was just me rambling. So this is going to be a bit of a, an introduction I guess to the Church of Lotu. Why I think we need a religion for atheists. A Religion for Critical Thinkers. Hope you enjoy. Well, welcome everybody to the historic first meeting of the Church of Low 2. Thank you for coming, my, uh, well, three disciples and wiggle bums asleep. But uh, that's okay. I'm pretty sure... few of Jesus' disciples were asleep during some of his talks. Oh, here's somebody else, Sibster's here. Hi, Sibster. Come in and grab a seat. <laughs> very nice. Very, very nice and digitised. Grab a seat, sir. So, um, really all I wanted to do, I think, today was talk a little bit about the vision for LOTU, why I started it, what it is, what I hope it will be what it is not and um, hopefully you guys will have some good ideas Um, you know it it will also tie in with Geeks Who Care I guess to an extent but um, you know I I guess Geeks Who Care will be a separate thing you'd have to be a member of Church of Lode to be part of Geeks of Care but Geeks of Care and Church of Lode will work together quite closely hopefully so basically um, as I'm sure um, a couple of you know anyway I've been fairly anti-religion for a long time and over the last year or so when I've been having discussions with uh, people about religion in general one of the pieces of feedback that uh, I get from time to time is that people need something to believe in. People need a a place to uh, Congregate, get together. They need a place where they can talk about their hopes and their fears and their vision for the future. They need to have a place where they can you know, get a sense of community and where they can ask the big questions about life. And I've personally never really felt the need for that. I'm quite comfortable with my own uh, perspectives on my life and the meaning or lack thereof of it. But I started to think, well, if we're going to try and, if I'm going to try and, move people away from superstition and mythology towards a more rational critical thinking approach and it's true that people need this kind of community of like-minded people or, or a place to get together or they need some sort of packaged up answers to the big questions why can't we have a community of atheists where we get together and we talk about these sorts of issues And initially I was thinking about it just as like a a meeting, a get-together kind of place. And then I thought, well, really, it is a religion. It is a church. That's what we're talking about. Even though the... the Uh, A connotation of the word religion means that you believe in some sort of supernatural or mythological being, it doesn't really need to be. I think really what a church is for people, when you strip it down, it's a place that like-minded people gather to worship together, to to form community. And really what I see is uh, one of the functions in Lotu is to help people appreciate that you don't need to believe in mythological entities to get a sense of Inspiration, a sense of uh, awe-inspiring majesty of the universe. And in, in a way, that's, a, I guess, a form of worship. I look at the the size and the complexity of the universe and the laws behind it, and I get a sense of, I don't know, my mind is blown. I feel uplifted. I feel small, in a way, to be part of it. But also, I feel lucky to be part of this. I feel a sense of majesty about the universe and I, I and i think that perhaps that perspective on atheism is something that isn't always necessarily readily apparent to people who are thinking about atheism and the scientific literature does in in a large part doesn't try and convey that kind of Vision for the universe because they try to be, you know, very, very uh, unemotional and very, very, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Very dry when they discuss science. With the, with the exceptions of a Carl Sagan perhaps or a Joseph Campbell, we, you know, people don't usually approach it from trying to give you a sense of wonder and a sense of awe when you, when you think about the universe and i thought well perhaps there is a place for that perhaps if atheism is going to offer a genuine alternative to the abrahamic religions or to the uh, you know other religions that are out there that are built around mythologies that we need to take some of the elements of traditional religion and traditional churches and bring it into atheism in the same way that the uh, Christian religion, uh, as it was evolving in its first millennium, went through all the pagan religions and stole bits of the different pagan ceremonies and pagan religions, like Easter and like the winter solstice celebration. And you know they they dragged them into Christianity, which is something that the Romans were very good at doing. Every time they conquered a new land, they would pick out the best, what they considered to be the best bits of it, and integrate it into Roman um, civilization. So. Uh, whilst I initially, you know, would have had a um, dislike or distaste for the word religion, I've decided it's time that we take it back and we create a religion for rational thinkers, for critical thinkers. And mostly, uh, uh, not for existing atheists, but really to provide a support network for new atheists, the people that are reading Richard Dawkins, reading Christopher Hitchens, reading Sam Harris, uh, listening to G'day World, (laughs) and going, you know what? Yeah, and they're starting to think more about the religion that they may have inherited from their parents. They've never really given it a great deal of thought. They've never really questioned it a great deal. They're now beginning to question it. They're beginning to think about, well, if I wasn't this, what would I be? And you know, I'm, I'm hoping that Lotu can become a, a a place in real life and also virtually where atheists can gather to... Inspire each other to discuss the laws of the universe as we currently understand them and what that means to us as individuals, what it means to the future of the human race, and what we can do to provide an alternative to the traditional religions, which I personally believe are part of a lot of the problems that the human race has in getting along around the world i don't think it's the only problem but i think it is uh, has played a large role in human conflict in the last 2000 years and is still playing a a large role in it today because at the end of the day i think when you read the core scriptures of the abrahamic religions in particular Hinduism is uh, a little bit different, but not too much. Buddhism is different. I re- don't really think of Buddhism usually as a religion, more as a philosophy, even though it does have its own canon of uh, God figures, um, in Mahayana Buddhism anyway. But um, you know, I think that yeah, the, the basis of most of the Abrahamic religions in particular is, is one of very violent texts. It's all about uh, believe what we believe or we'll either kill you now, which is the Old Testament's version. And in the New Testament's versions, it's, well, we won't kill you now, but when you die, you're going to be tortured for eternity in hell for not agreeing with us and not getting on board. And I don't care, I mean, uh, the the fact that there may be a few uh, nice homonyms in the New Testament, the very premise of it I consider to be extremely intolerant and violent. And I think we can do better. I think it's the 21st century and we're, uh, we deserve a more civilized, rational, tolerant and less violent uh, religion. And so one of the ideas that I had for LOTU is that LOTU would uh, sign up to the United Nations Charter on Human Rights, which I think is a pretty good document. don't know if any of you have read it, but, um, and I can't claim to have read it in as much detail as I should have, but I have skimmed it over the years, and I think it's a, a pretty good start for um, human rights. Any questions? No. Okay, good. Well, just, uh, (laughs) I was trying to come up with a good uh, guru line, but I couldn't think of one. So what do you guys think? Do you think it's, uh, uh, you know, I think a lot of people when I announced it on Twitter and Facebook seem to think that I'm just taking the piss and that it's going to be like flying spaghetti monster, but it's really not. I mean, I really am quite serious about uh, us needing to create some sort of community around atheism, whether or not it needs to be a church or a religion, I'm not really wedded to. I just think it might be uh, an interesting way to uh, reclaim those words or or create a new version of those words. But what do you think about the idea of atheists getting together? Well, yeah, and that's that's one of the exact reasons for having something like LOTU is... a a more welcoming kind of a community than Dawkins may be. And I've got huge respect for Dawkins. and I'm a big admirer of what he's doing and him as an intellect, um, what he's done around evolutionary biology for the last 30 years. But, you know, I know that he um, does not necessarily, and he he admitted himself. In fact, one of the um, inspirations for LOTU was I was listening to a recent Podcast with Dawkins on the Point of inquiry podcast they were at some sort of a conference and they were up on stage with him and did like a live chat and they challenged him on the fact that he is perceived to being quite shrill and quite aggressive towards religion and that he may not be the best uh, advocate for atheism because of that, and he agreed. He said, "Look, I'm you're absolutely right. I do really lose my cool with these people, and they frustrate me and make me angry, and I'm probably not the best kind of uh, political calm representative. And I know I'm not either, because uh, I'm you know I, I get really aggro as well. But I think that we should have a place where people can come, and the reason it's I guess I've associated with atheism, Tony, is that uh, you know I f- think that it's very hard to uh, sign up to a uh, uh, to, to, to be to, to the label of being a critical thinker or a rational thinker, and yet at the same time say that you believe in supernatural beings or mythological, you know, gods and demons. Uh, you, it's got to be one or the other don't you think? And I think the atheist word is um, a little bit... It, it, it almost comes across as being nihilist to a lot of people. And, um, uh, you know, I certainly don't consider myself a nihilist. And I, and I think the atheist word has um, some baggage with it that sort of comes from oppression of atheists by... Uh, evangelical religious people of of all denominations over the last century or two keeping in mind that it's only really been the last century and a half where anyone could call themselves an atheist in the west and not either be killed or at least shunned socially and and, um, professionally as well but, um, you know it has a certain stigma about it, and it also has this connotation of emptiness, or, as I said, nihilism and I definitely don't feel that um, you know my life has no meaning or no purpose, and there are no morals or no ethics behind, behind being an atheist. so I think we need a new a new label, a new badge, a new thing that people can belong to that's a that has positive connotations and not necessarily. You know, n- only negative connotations or, or no connotations at all, which uh, also perhaps could be the way that atheism is perceived by people on the outside looking in. Welcome, uh, Gurley and Sybina. Don't know if you guys have got your audio on, but if you have, welcome. Hi, Sybina. Welcome. So, anyone got any other suggestions, comments? Bet it was just like this for Jesus, too. Hey, he said, I've got an idea. All we're going to do is, what do you reckon? And there's just a silence. Well, it, yeah, I, I totally agree with you. I think that people who uh, are living to uh, either a life plan that's presented to them in this collection of old documents written by a bunch of guys running around in the Middle East between 1,000 and 2,000 years ago or, um, or believing that you know when they die, that's when their real life is going to start – is not just sad. It's kind of it's kind of tragic in a way, but it's also uh, Well, maybe dangerous. Isn't the real world? I usually say it's dangerous, but I think it's it's it means that we have this large percentage of the human race that aren't really committed <laughs> to making the most of their time on the planet. You know, and. Uh, You know, I think the human race, if we're going to survive, let alone progress, through the course of this century, we need to have people fully engaged with thinking about what we're doing and the consequences of what we're doing. What we're doing, why we're doing it, and the consequences of it. But as you say, it's, it's certainly, um, if you're not living your life with your own vision and your own direction and your own sense of purpose, and you're taking a sense of purpose that was given to you by a book or by some leaders of a religion, then that's kind of, uh, that's kind of, <laughs> I see that as empty, not as being an atheist. Somebody suggested on Twitter today, somebody asked me if there was going to be any commandments in Lotu, and I said no. And then somebody said, what about having one commandment, thou shalt think for thyself. I thought that was kind of good. I like that one. And Lotu, if anyone didn't pick it up, really means the laws of the universe. And uh, Miriam gave me a hard time about that the other day. Fair enough. I guess I, I don't know. I don't know where I originally came up with the names of the laws of the universe, but it was just basically the idea that you know the 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 scientific theories and scientific laws that are supported by a great deal of evidence from our rational investigations of the universe and what makes it tick, and that uh, these are the things that we should be not worshipping really but respecting and appreciating and these are the things that we should maybe consider is what's driving the universe as opposed to some sort of a god figure and they should be the things that we are really striving as a as a species and as individuals to understand to appreciate to use as the basis for how we think about uh, what's happening in the, on our planet and, and what decisions we need to make as a species about the planet, about each other. Uh, You know, when you think about uh, racial divisions uh, around the planet, when we start to realize that we are all related, you go back not even that far, you go back uh, I think as little as 20,000 years and we're all related. I think our, our last common ancestor uh, wasn't that long ago. And uh, in fact, I heard a great um, a great podcast, might have been one of the TED Talks or something, a couple of months ago. They were talking about Genghis Khan <laughs> and how they believe that something like all of the people living in China today and a lot of other people around um, the East, something like one and a half, two billion people, uh, they believe it directly descended from Genghis Khan. They, they traced this uh, DNA signature right down through Asia and uh, they, they could, they'd sort of traced it back. There was a, a particular signature in the um, male line in a particular part of the genome and they could trace it back through history and they could trace it that it sort of followed the, the uh, Genghis Khan's hordes as they invaded Asia, and they knew that Genghis Khan was incredibly uh, prolific, had supposedly had something like over 100 children in his lifetime, and so they think it was either him or his eldest son that uh, (laughs) basically sired all of the people living in China and other parts of Asia today, so there you go, I thought that was a pretty interesting story. And I just picked low two because I thought it sounded cool. Well, I think that's the um, from an evolutionary biological perspective, that's what we're here to do. Definitely, where uh, what did he call us? Where uh, when he wrote the selfish gene, he talked about how we're, the, a human being is really a gene protection mechanism. All organisms are really gene protection mechanisms. They're to allow the Genetic code to survive long enough to be able to proc- procreate or you know um, make another copy of itself, but um, you know I think one of the big questions is what are we here to do? And you know it goes for me anyway. It goes beyond uh, passing along my genome. You know one of the the uh, thoughts that I've had now for. Ten years or so, I remember sitting down with Damien Broderick for dinner about ten years ago. He's a um, quite a well-known Australian science fiction author who now lives in the U.S. But we were um, we were having dinner. I was, I was we were talking about our role in the universe and and um, and uh, the, one of the things that I came up with at the time was I think that if you look at the course of let's say the universe is fourteen point three. whatever it is, billion years old, As the, uh, you think you got the low-to thing from a blog rant? Oh, did I? Maybe I did. Oh, no, I think I already had the idea before I um, wrote that blog, Miriam. I think um, I just hadn't launched it then. I've been thinking about this for a month or two. if the the planet is if the universe is 14.5 billion years old and it started with uh, you know an element of of chaos I guess and you know what if what if human beings are the highest form of intelligence to come out of that, that that still exists you know, when you lo- I was out with Cozzo and Fizz for drinks last week, and I was talking about this, I so was saying that there's this this great equation that Carl Sagan and a bunch of scientists came up with in the late '50s or early '60s, I think. They were they had a conference in um, a place called Green Bank in New Jersey, and it's called the Green Bank equation. There's another name for it that I can't remember, but it's often referred to as the Green Bank equation. And basically, they tried to work out an equation to figure out the probability. Of intelligent life coexisting somewhere else in the universe at the same time as humans and depending on the variables that you plug into this equation the probability can either be quite high or it can be extremely low and we don't know the 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 real variables to plug in so we're really just guessing but what if we take a worst-case scenario and what if human beings are the only or the most advanced form of intelligence in the universe currently and we screw up we wipe ourselves out i don't think we'll necessarily destroy the planet i think as uh, george carlin says the planet will do just fine it'll it's gone through worse than us and it'll recover might take it 10 million years but it will recover and life will probably survive unless we do something terrible but but we could easily wipe humans out and if we did that from my perspective we have just torched 14.5 billion years of excruciatingly slow carbon-based evolution. <laughs> Thanks Nick, very good. And even on, on this planet, if you just take the four four and a half billion year history of the earth and you say that if we, if we screw up as a, as a species and we wipe ourselves out or we set ourselves back significantly, which is the least worst of the scenarios that we could look at, but we, we've just blown four and a half billion years of excruciatingly slow, you know, carbon-based evolution. Uh, and um, to me, that's just the hugest possible catastrophe and disaster. Now, the question is, is if we survive, what can we do? What are we here to do? And um, I don't know. This I've heard some really good ideas out there about that. The one that I like is you know if we if the universe is going to slow down at some stage and collapse back in on itself or just continue to spread apart until all gravitational bonds are weakened and everything just stops working as we currently think of it maybe that's what we need to stop maybe we need to create order in the universe maybe we need to figure out a way to make the universe sustainable because the current theories are that it's it's not one way or another, it's going to... Even the, the Sun, I mean, the Sun's going to become a red giant, what, in... No, it doesn't become a red giant, it becomes smaller, doesn't it? When the fusion stops happening. But um, it's going to happen sometime in the next couple of billion years. So, what happens? So it does become a red giant, right, when they get older. So, you know, maybe maybe we need to stop that. Maybe we need to figure out either how we stop that or how, you know, we take intelligence off planet in a Charles Strassian uh, <laughs> kind of manner, you know. Uh, we, we take intelligence out to the universe and see what intelligence can do if we spread it far and wide. <laughs> yeah, man, well, Accelerando uh, in particular is hugely inspirational for me. I mean, there's... There's some um, scary scenarios in that, but there's also some really inspirational scenarios for what happens if we can take intelligence off planet and spread it universally. But I don't know. I mean, I don't know. Where where do you guys get your meaning? What do you think we're here to do, if anything? Are we just here to spread our genes and die, or can the human race do something more... I don't know, uh, purposeful. Yeah, well, yeah. You know, I think you bring up a couple of great points. I mean, that that whole thing about the uh, billions of human beings that have lived and died. No, I, I just started drawing a cartoon series on that to try and express my thinking around it. But, and I, I'm sure you and I've talked about this before, Nick. But I have this um, recurring not a hallucination or a dream, but I know, I continually think about this idea of how many direct descendants I must have had. Hey, Kate, welcome. Must have had, um, you know, over the course of the last, let's say human, Homo sapiens, modern Homo sapiens have been around two million years, let's say. Um, I think about the number of direct descendants that I must have had and I tried to work it out once with a spreadsheet and and sort of freaked me out, but there, there must be I must have hundreds of thousands, if not millions of direct descendants over the last you know million two million years, and you know what we know sorry ancestors sorry, thanks for clarifying that um, yeah, lots of direct uh, ancestors and I, and I think uh you know what what we know about the way that early humans lived and gee up until the last couple of hundred years most of those people would have lived the most meager of existences literally living in the dirt started working f- you know real work not work like people in IT do but real work um <laughs> yeah thanks Miriam i know i'm working on that uh Uh, you know, they would have started working from the moment they could walk, probably. They would have scratched out the most meagre of livings from the dirt, probably would have died fairly young, would have survived just long enough to pass on their genetic material. They, They probably didn't often have any food at all to eat or very little food, and what they did have was probably very bad food by modern standards. And this was this was their existence. This was human existence for millions of years. And the only thing that they did was really pass on their genetic material. And here we are today, where, you know, most of us living in Western countries with democracy, with the Internet, we 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 make, you know, it's not not having enough food. That's the problem in the West. today. that so we have so much food that 60 percent of us are suffering from obesity or, or you know, weight related health problems. We, we've come so far, and yet these people literally lived and died so we could be here. They lived the most awful of lives, by our standards anyway in some ways. I'm sure some of them were happy and they didn't know any different, but it was a very, very tough existence anyway you cut it. And all they really did was survive long enough to create some kids, and then now we're here. And I often wonder if one of those was here and looking at how you and I live today, I mean, what, the way that we live today would literally be heaven. And it's not just our ancestors. I mean, by any current international metric, the way that most of us in the West live is obscene. You know, if, you, if you take most of the people living in China, most of the people living in India, most of the people living in Africa, the way that we live today is just obscene. We, we are in heaven. Don't worry about dying and going to heaven. We're in heaven. We got food, we got shelter, we got air conditioning and heating, we got cars, we got the net, we got education, healthcare. It's it's obscenely good, and yet most of us spend this precious existence that we have worrying about, you know, who's been evicted from Big Brother, um, uh, who's winning the cricket, who's winning the football. Uh, Yeah, the most. God, awfully mundane topics. Who Britney Spears is pregnant to now? Like, and I just imagine that somebody from a couple of thousand years ago or a couple of hundred years ago, one of our ancestors turned up and looked over a shoulder. They, would, I imagine, they would be horrified looking at how good we've got it and and how little we do with it. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, you know, how little we do with it. Uh, it it's just. Uh, so I mean, I, I often get inspiration from that. I often think about the not so much debt of gratitude, but the responsibility that I have to my ancestors to make the most with this gift they have given me, which are these things like democracy. Democracy wasn't just handed to us. You know, democracy was hard fought for over thousands of years by humans at various stages. They lived and they they fought and they died for the ideals of democracy and, and all of us have grown up in it and, and probably take it for granted but it, it, it was a, a gift of our ancestors the internet, technology, electricity the wheel for heaven's sakes all of these things that we have were g- given to us by our ancestors we've inherited them we haven't had to fight for them we haven't had to invent them but I feel a sense of obligation to those people well what do we do with all of this now? Where do we take it? And the, the other thing that you said before, uh, when you're talking about getting Dawkins or Strauss or somebody to talk about the futures, Nick, is like who out there today is building a vision for the human race? Who out there is setting the setting the bar for where we're going to be 50 years from now or 100 years from now? Who's who's setting the the big vision and saying, okay, let's go out there over the horizon, let's go to Akaba. <laughs> Don't know if any of you have seen Lawrence of Arabia, but. Uh, <laughs> It's a great scene where Lawrence Peter O'Toole is goes out into the desert for forty. Yeah. I think you're right. I think that uh, you know the visionaries that we have out there are really visionaries. talking like the the Al Gore's talking about ancestor worship, <laughs> thinking about uh, you know what we need to do to survive you know the next fifty years as a as a species. And uh, it's more about how do we fix the problems that we've created today rather than what I would consider an aspirational vision of what can we become as a species, what can we do, what can we aspire to, what can we achieve. And uh, I think that's a shame. I, I think that, yeah, if you go back, and you, you know, in the early part of the 20th century, in the late 19th century and the 20th, early 20th century, pre-World War Two, I guess, where they would have these world fairs, now I've been reading uh, biography on Nikola Tesla at the moment and looking at you know the, the the world fairs that he went to and participated in, where they would build these amazing visions. All of the countries of the world would come together and build these amazing visions for where the world was going. And as far as I know, we don't do that anymore. Where, where do we get together and talk and, and talk about where the world's going over the next you know 50, 100 years? You know, people. Get together and MacWorld. <laughs> That's just to the next product release for Steve. You know, we get together at CES and we talk about what's coming out next year, but we don't talk about where are we going. And maybe it's because it's too hard. You know, in a Kurtz sense, you know, as soon as you get we get 10, 15 years out, we we just fall off the <laughs> we fall off the uh, the charts. It becomes very hard to predict. Realistically. What 's going to happen in the next decade or two? I oh, mean you know, obviously all of those predictions in the world fairs a hundred years ago were probably way off, but uh, I, I, that's not necessarily a bad thing. I think that humans need something to live up to. We need a vision for ourselves that we can aspire to and and maybe that's one of the things that we try and do in LOTU is get all of these big thinkers from around the world to help us craft an aspirational vision for the human race what can we become if we really, really try hard? You know, we set goals for businesses and we set goals for countries to an extent. Um, We set goals for ourselves as individuals, but who's setting goals for the human race? What goals do we have for the species over the course of the next century? And if we don't have a goal, what? how do we know what we need to do to live up to that goal? How do we know how to prepare for it? It's like anything, if you don't set a if you don't set a financial goal, <laughs> you're right, man. Roddenberry was, you know, he was probably one. And I was going to say earlier on, it's the sci-fi authors. It's the Charles Strossers. It's the Werner Vingers and the Gene Roddenberry's <laughs> who, who set that vision for us. Um, but it's considered fiction. Nobody, not many people outside of geeks possibly, really buy into that as a genuine aspirational vision for the human race. They don't teach it in school as, well, this is what the human race is capable of if we really put our shoulders to it over the course of the next century. You know, you go back, though, um, into the, the Middle Ages You look at some of these churches, uh, Notre Dame in Paris and uh, the uh, Duomo in Florence, that took hundreds of years to be built. (laughs) They used to start these buildings, and their great-great-great-great-great-grandchildren would actually finish them. (laughs) I mean, it was uh, astounding to think that you would start a a church and that 200 years later it was going to get finished. I um, imagine that from now. I mean, I, I can't even begin to fathom what the human race is going to look like 200 years from now. I'm, I doubt that it will survive this century, quite frankly. At least in any recognisable uh, description. But anyway, I, I think I do think that we need aspirational visions to live up to. Same before. It's like it's like setting financial goals for yourself or for your business. If you don't. Know where you want to be. You, you can't set a realistic plan for getting there. Somebody needs to be, um, I know, setting a game plan for the human race. We need to be setting a game plan for the human race. We, the human race, needs to get together and, and set a game plan for where we want to be. And then we take control of the political processes that we need to to get us there. You know, we need to take control of the media, the political processes, and you know, the the corporate environment to achieve the ends that we want as a species. I, I, I think we've been flailing about in the dark for too long, hoping that uh a few people know what they're doing and is gonna take care of us. I just realized there was no point recording video for this, was there really? We're all just sitting here. <laughs> There's nothing to see. The video adds nothing whatsoever, really, after you check out people's avatars for the first 10 seconds. And that's pretty much all there was. About 10 minutes after I shut this down, another half a dozen people turned up and said, are we ready for the meeting? And I explained that they were late. I'm pretty sure that happened to Jesus as well. Those people rocking up and Jesus was a pretty, pretty much a stickler for time, as I am. Well, if that made any sense to you, check out www.thelotu.com, sign up to our Facebook group and our Tangler discussion group, and uh, let me know what you think about the idea of a, a community for atheists. This is Cameron Riley. Make something worthwhile of your life, people. Cheers.